1: This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, February 28th, 2019. Tomorrow is the first day of March. If my voice breaks, it's because I'm still dealing with the tail end of a head cold or allergies, I don't know which. In the marketplace of mortgage loans and foreclosures and declarations of default, we have a fake world in which investment banks, the mega banks, hide their existence and connection to real estate loans. That connection is there even though they hide it. Virtually nobody on whose behalf a declaration of default is issued nobody has suffered a default because they don't own the debt because and because they suffered no loss and yet they do they issue declarations of default and they start foreclosure proceedings and they take houses by default unless some homeowner says wait who the heck are you it was the investment bank like goldman sachs Merrill Lynch, it was the investment bank who funded the loans or who funded the acquisition of loans. Not some trust, not some investors, not Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, and in most cases, certainly not the indiscriminately named originator who appears on the note and mortgage. Yes, the investors served up the capital for it. But they served it to Goldman Sachs and to Merrill Lynch, Lehman, Bear Stearns, etc. Now, depending upon how high high they were on the ladder, some of them ended up paying for leveraging on this scheme. But the megabanks did not. The megabanks being the multinational trillion dollar banks. Goldman Sachs is a typical example of what is, is basically only a handful of megabanks that have tacit reciprocal agreements to cover for each other as master services, trustees, depositors, and masquerade as sellers of loan documents they do not own. They sell promissory notes made payable to other people. They pretend they own the mortgage or deed of trust, but they don't because they chose not to own those documents. They enter into contracts with newly formed companies, listing companies to perform services that we now know are illegal. We've seen the billion-dollar settlements, but those are pennies on the dollar. Pursuant to those illegal contracts, still other new or old companies are indiscriminately designated, designated as claimants, plaintiffs, beneficiaries, or otherwise entitled to collect, pretending to hold claims or pretending to have the right or even excuse to enforce claims or collect. They don't have that right. All the while, the investment bank has always and only been the owner of the debt that originated in illegal loan closings that indiscriminately designated non-lenders as payees on the notes and non-lenders on mortgages or beneficiaries on deeds of trust. Yes, the investment bank, Goldman Sachs, in many instances, was the sole owner of the debt at the time it was created by wire transfer into the account of the closing agent and then to pay your seller or prior lender, whatever it was. The reason why Goldman Sachs, and I just use them by example, but they're a prominent example, the reason why Goldman Sachs doesn't step forward and say we are the owner of the debt, even though they were, either at the time of origination or at the time of original acquisition, the reason they don't say that they they are is simple. They don't own it anymore because they sold it in pieces, or multiple times. There are two essential steps to the lie we live with day in and day out, hence the name of my blog, Living Lies. First, saying that they were the owner of the debt admits they lied to investors when they set a trust on the debt. investors wouldn't have been very happy if they had learned that, in fact, Goldman Sachs was the owner of uh, of the debt, and all they had was paper that was made payable to parties that never loaned money. That, in turn, led to the required lie in court that U.S. Bank or Deutsche Bank was trustee on behalf of certificate holders of certificates issued in the name of a non-existent trust. Second, saying they were the owner of the debt exposes them to inquiries about other things, many things, like whether they are still the owner of the debt, which they are not. They repeatedly sold the debt in sales disguised as derivatives or hedge products so if they say they're the owner of the debt they would be opening themselves up to billions perhaps trillions of dollars in liability why because they lied about owning the note and mortgage it was the paper that they pretended to securitize it was never the debt that they pretended to securitize but it looked that way and that's where the world of finance and the world of jurisprudence got all confused. But the paper was worthless because it named a creditor who didn't loan money and who had no contract or other right to loan money. Like magic, money from Goldman Sachs appeared at the closing table making borrowers falsely believe that they were signing notes and mortgages to the companies who had loaned the money. Worse yet, As we've seen several times where candor was required from lawyers and other representatives of the banking banking industry, nobody knows anymore the identity of the owners of the debts because they number for each debt in the dozens, hundreds, or thousands by virtue of that many derivative contracts that were sold as private contracts and are not listed anywhere. They're not securities, which, uh, which you could follow, like on the New York Stock Exchange, for example. And still worse, the owner of the debt when it was created, the investment bank, has already allocated the money proceeds of those multiple sales of the derivatives deriving their v- value, supposedly, from the original loan paper they've already received the money proceeds of those money multiple sales on their own books and taken a profit from the resale of the debt multiple times so the owner of the debt at creation shows a credit balance that should be allocated to the account of the borrower that credit never appears and interestingly enough on every one of the servicer uh, payment ledgers, you see incoming payments, you see outgoing disbursements, except you don't see disbursements to the owner of the debt or anyone, for that matter, representing uh, most of the uh, uh, payment that was received by the borrower, that was received from the borrower. So those payment ledgers are on their face incomplete and not the whole story, which (coughs) can be the subject of an objection in court and should be the subject of discovery in litigation. (coughs) Sorry. So yes, on average, according to my analysis and the analysis of many others, the average $200,000 loan produced a, a whopping 3 to 4 million in profit. You have to understand that even though this, because in order to understand the subject of the show, which is settlement, they're looking at a 3 to 4 million dollar profit, you're looking at a $200,000 loan. You both of you are looking at two completely different things. Still, they want to take your home because if they don't try, they would be admitting to fraud, and that would undermine the value of all derivatives traded on the basis of value supposedly derived from residential mortgage loans. But value is only derived from the debt. It's not just words on paper. There has to be an actual transaction that those derivatives are tied to. And the transaction and the paper has to reflect the actual debt, and the actual debt is only between the borrower and the lender. And in in all these cases, at the outset or shortly thereafter, the borrower is the homeowner and the lender is an investment bank whose name is never stated to the borrower or to the courts or any other intermediary. It is only when this world is threatened with actual exposure that homeowners with uh, $200,000 loans or more or less uh, get paid settlements. When you threaten to expose the fake world, in which indiscriminate parties are allowed to foreclose on millions of homes, and they are allowed billions of dollars to be paid as bonuses to them, everyone in the chain, to keep their mouths shut. This fake world is so convoluted that both courts and lawyers are reluctant to try to penetrate to the truth. But it's worth the persistence. It is only when this world... This fake world is threatened with actual exposure that homeowners uh, get paid settlements that, that are meaningful in six figures, sometimes seven, and we've seen a few in eight figures. Those, those of you who don't know the numbers, six figures is up to a million dollars. Seven figures is a million to up to 10 million dollars and eight figures is over 10 million dollars they pay that money because it's worth it to to protect this fake world where multiples of every loan ha- have been have generated profits of 10 15, 20 times what the principles of the loan were. I've been saying this for years, and I have yet, I've had plenty of criticism. I've had plenty of ridicule. I've yet to read a single thing that says that I'm actually wrong that was authored by somebody who knows. I know because I was on Wall Street. I know because I've done the analysis and I've done the interviews on Wall Street and off. I know because it's the truth. Because the settlement is not based on the value of the loan. It's based on the value of the threat of exposure. And in most cases... The homeowner presents no threat of exposure. So all he gets is cash for keys or something equivalent to that. You can always settle any case by horse trading on the amount due, when it is due, at what intervals, and the interest rate. But more and more uh, foreclosure defense lawyers are asking me the right questions What are the elements to consider when evaluating the settlement value of a foreclosure case? Emphasis on the case at hand distracts from the value of the threat to the other side. You want to concentrate on the three or four million that they made, not on the $200,000 loan. If you can present a threat to that, then you're going to get one of those good settlements, hopefully. Not always. No guarantee. There are plenty of people who fail for a variety of reasons. Bottom line, if you don't have the tenacity, stomach, and resources to litigate all the way, you might just as well settle on any terms you can get. But you can improve your odds by sending a qualified written request, debt validation letter, complaint to the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Board, complaint to the state attorney general, and you can also improve your odds by aggressively pursuing discovery and litigation and getting an order requiring your opposition to produce answers or to produce documents that they don't have. The way you win this case is by showing what they don't have and that they should have. That's how I've won the cases that I've won. That's how other lawyers have won the cases they've won. But if you do have the tenacity, stomach, and resources to litigate all the way to the end, your chances of a favorable result are greatly improved. I'm broadcasting live from DeVal County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And the show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we urgently ask that you hit the Donate button on the blog or call 954-451-1230 and pledge whatever you think you could afford. If this show is value for you, if our work on the blog and our radio shows, all without payment from any party or advertising revenue or any other support, if that is value to you, then please chip in. Make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Valuing a case for timing of settlement and the amount of settlement. The answer depends upon your goals and your determination. These cases are settled within an extremely wide range. In fact I would even say that they're settled within a very wild range. The highest known settlement to me known to me is thirty one million as a rare case the lowest and there are many tens of thousands of these were settled for nominal amounts, cash for keys but there's also a substantial number in the, in the many thousands of homeowners who pressed the litigation to the end and the average settlement for them who litigated aggressively is in six figures in other words, over 100000 under a million, <clears throat> all under seal of confidentiality. So everybody involved with those settlements cannot refer specifically to those settlements that they even exist. Some settlements allow for retention or recovery of the property. So even a lawsuit after the property has been sold can sometimes result in recovery of the property. Those will often be under the guise of a modification, but not always. It could be just part of a settlement. They deed the property to you, and they give you money too. Uh, uh, but the if, if it is a modification, keep in mind that in reality, I think my analysis is that I would treat it as an entirely new loan, which may require... Uh, truth and lending disclosures and may renew the three-year period or three-day period even uh, for TILA rescission. The only constant factors in terms of settlement that I've seen in working on this for what, what is this, 2019? So it's 12, 13 years These are the constant factors. The banks force every litigator to either go to the end aggressively or to give up. They usually use ridicule, ridicule, intimidation, or document dumps or discovery to wear you down, anything. And they keep offering settlements that are insulting in order to undermine your confidence in the case that's their playbook because it works most people give up essentially and settle for far less than the case is worth so don't expect any meaningful settlement offers until the 11th hour or beyond that means trial and and be willing to go even beyond that and pushing motions for attorney's fees and so forth Those cases in which discovery is litigated aggressively settle earlier and better than those who merely wait for trial. Motions to compel, motions for sanctions and motions in limiting are common in such cases. Aggressive uh, uh, filing of those motions with memoranda and aggressive argument in court Frequently, well, let's say this, it improves your chances of getting an order that will uh, compel the other side to consider your case a threat to their fake world being revealed. Those cases in which cross-examination is effective in breaking down the credibility and foundation for the evidence proffered for a foreclosure, typically, but not always, result in a judgment for the borrower or a favorable settlement just prior to the announcement or entry of judgment or final order. Cross-examination requires extensive preparation and practice before trial and the ability and willingness to press points on follow-up. You've got to know your rules of evidence, and know why you're asking these questions. It can't just be idle curiosity. And if you're going to ask the why question, watch out, because you're going to get an answer that you don't like unless you're positive that you can, that you know what that answer is going to be and you can discredit it. All devices that could result in an award of t- attorney's fees should be employed since this adds kind of a ground floor to the claim for damages and settlement or judgment. Assessing the value of a case is very complex and always evolving. As with all cases, there are two main layers. The value to the plaintiff, remember the $200,000 loan, and the value to the defendant, which uh, the other side, uh, the actual parties that you're involved with really have nothing to do with anything, but generally speaking, if you just say the other side, they're looking at the three to four million on the two hundred thousand that that got spread around. In foreclosures, there's a huge disparity between the two views. If the homeowner loses the case, they lose their financial reputation in addition to their property and suffer consequences of disruption to their personal lives, emotional and physical health. If the claimant wins, it's almost entirely meaningless to them in terms of monetary reward. The named claimant was never intended to receive the proceeds of liquidation of the property and doesn't get it. The parties directing the attorneys for the named claimant get another nail in the box in which they perpetuate the myth of securitization. If the homeowner wins, it could either be a dismissal without prejudice, in which case the claimant has lost nothing, or a judgment on the merits, in which case the named claimant loses nothing, and the loss is swallowed up amongst hundreds of thousands of other transactions. So you see that, in a way, they don't care whether they win or lose. What they care about is whether the lie is going to be exposed. The threat of a homeowner winning generally has very little meaning to either the designated claimant or the parties pulling the strings. Cases in which a win by the homeowner could represent a threat to the securitization scheme of that particular REMIC trust that's named and which doesn't exist, or some other vehicle, or might even spread to many other alleged trusts and vehicles, that represents the basis upon which meaningful, larger settlements are paid. And that's what you got to focus on. So cases in which the existence of the claimant is going to be declared fraudulent or at least doubtful, or cases in which the existence of a
0: claim by
1: that, that's owned by the supposed claimant, the plaintiff or the so-called beneficiary, if that is is about to be declared invalid or there's a high risk that it will uh, and, and that it's uh, unsupported, those are aggressively settled to bury the truth. And that's really the whole story about settlement. I started off with my usual rant about securitization and giving you as much insight as I can into this short period of time on the radio show in which to give you the context of where real settlements occur. It's not about the amount of the loan. Not really. That's a joke to the other side. What it is about is whether you have litigated or pressed your claim or obtained an order requiring them to turn over answers or documents that you know they don't have. When you get that order, they are in trouble and you can start pressing your case. But even then, they may try to wear you down, and they probably will. It's only the people who try to litigate to the end, who persist, who have the resources and stomach for it. Those are the people who are most likely, but not guaranteed, to get a very favorable settlement. Thank you. Good night. We'll be back with you t- uh, next week.
0: Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.